Good morning. It is so good to be with you guys today. I've enjoyed worshiping with you already, singing these songs. And by the way, I don't know if I've ever seen so many kids in a service before. This is just wonderful. And I, I really don't believe I've ever seen so many kids singing so well to the glory of God. So well done, parents and church. Uh, and uh, it's just really great to be with you guys today. I'm from Baltimore. This is my family. And uh, uh, we uh, are part of the Garden Church. It's a church that I was able to plant uh, over the last number of years. Um, and I was uh, encouraged to share a couple ways that you could be praying for us. Uh, one thing is we are about to sign a contract on a building. And that would be a huge, huge move for us. Like you guys, we've been a portable church uh, for uh, quite a few years. And uh, the space we meet in is not very good. Uh, we have rats, we have mold, you name it. We need to get out. And we're trying to buy a building. So pray for that, that God would provide this space and all the funds needed, of course, to renovate it. Um, and then also, we're trying to plant churches. We've got two elders that are, we're hoping to send out as church planters in the next one to three years. So if you could be praying for that process as well as we pray about that and think about planting churches in really some of the toughest communities in Baltimore City. Uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to just look at two verses today. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and verse 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and I, by the way, have been so blessed by uh, your pastor, John, and others that are part of this church, and uh, just want to say that um, I'm sure you're all looking forward to Pastor John being back from sabbatical, but I'm happy to preach this morning in his absence from this great book and from this great chapter, so if we could stand together for the reading of God's word, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and verse 17. And it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, we ask that as we hear and, uh, and dig into these two verses that you would speak to us. I pray that you would help me as I preach, that I don't merely preach my own ideas, but I preach your word I pray that you would open our hearts, the hearts of the listeners, that you would shape us and fashion us according to your likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to preach to you this morning on these two verses, and I'm going to title my sermon, Unashamed of the Gospel. Unashamed of the Gospel. A number of years ago, my wife and I met a young lady named Benicia. She was a waitress at a wet restaurant in, in Baltimore City that we, uh, we used to go to all the time, really good food. And it was a Nepalese restaurant. She was from Nepal. And we got to know Benicia uh, through our 
times eating lunch there. And uh, uh, she would talk about Nepal and the beauty of Nepal and the culture and the culture of hospitality. She even invited us to come once she moves back home and visit. And, uh, and, and it got to the point where I realized, like, we need to share the gospel with Venetia. And so I asked if we could meet up, and she said yes. And, and so I met with her uh, in the restaurant there. And, and I began asking her questions on religion, her own background. She was Hindu, and she could tell me a lot about the Hindu culture, but she couldn't really tell me much about what Hindus believed, especially in regards to the afterlife. And as, as we talked, what, what became very clear was she had no confidence in the afterlife. And so I asked her, I said, hey, would you be interested in hearing what the Bible says, what Christianity offers on the afterlife? And so she was eager to hear that. And, uh, and, and so then I asked her, I said, have you, do you have any background with Christianity? Are you familiar with Christianity? And she said, well, actually, I, uh, I am. I, I uh, ride a one-hour commute each way with four Christians every day. And I was like, oh, that's great. Um, what have they told you about Christianity? And she said, actually, nothing. And I was, I was sad. One hour every day with four Christians. And they never told her anything about Christianity. And so I asked her if she would like to hear what we believe, and she said yes, she was happy to do so. And so I was happy to share the gospel with her, but I was also sad, not sad in sort of like a, uh, I'm better than these other four Christians, kind of way, more like, man, I resonate too well with these other four Christians. Because I have had so many times in my own life where I had multiple opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody, and I just didn't. I don't, I don't know why. Maybe I, maybe I felt like it was not the right time. Maybe I felt like they would not respond well. Maybe I just figured that they would not believe that they were not going to get it, and so I refrained. But this line in Romans chapter 1 encourages me. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. You don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. I don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. We want to be bold and we want to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. And I would assume that the Roman Christians themselves also did not want to be ashamed of the gospel. But I believe they were, which is why Paul was addressing them in this way. I mean, think about these poor Roman Christians for a second. This is a letter written by Paul to Christians in Rome, they had it kind of rough. Historians tell us that the Roman Christians had opposition on every side. On one side were the, uh, the Romans, the, the Greeks, the, uh, uh, the Gentiles, and uh, they were the pagans. They, they called the Christians atheists because the Christians did not believe in the gods, and they were persecuted by them. The persecution is about to ramp up 
in the next decade here. But on the other side, they were also persecuted by the Jews. You know, for the Jews to hear of a, 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 a Messiah who came into the world and, and had to die and then rose again three days later and his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom and not a physical kingdom. And like all of this stuff would have been foolishness to the Jewish listener. And so we can assume that the Roman Christians were reluctant in opening their mouths and sharing about Jesus. And, and we too may be reluctant Tim Keller offers four reasons why the gospel is offensive for the world. And I wonder if you would uh, resonate with any of these. The gospel is offensive to the world, number one, because it tells us that we are unable to save ourselves. The gospel, he says, by telling us that salvation is free and undeserved is really insulting. It tells us that we are such spiritual failures that the only way to gain salvation is for it to be a complete gift. This offends moral and religious people who think their decency gives them an advantage over less moral people. Secondly, the gospel is offensive to the world because we're talking about the necessity to believe that Jesus had to die for us, and that's offensive to the self-righteous. It's, a, it's, a, it's insulting to say that, hey, we are so bad that we need a savior, that Jesus had to die. I just had a conversation yesterday with two Muslims on this very topic, and I explained that we need a Savior. For our, one sin is enough to damn us to hell. For all of eternity, we need a Savior. And, and they were offended by this. It's insulting. Third, no one is good enough to be saved. And if you don't come to Jesus, you will not be saved. Again, that's offensive. Fourth, the gospel is about Jesus suffering and serving, not conquering and destroying. So if, if we are called then to be like Jesus, we're called to suffer well. We're called to serve well. And this offends the person who wants the easy life. This offends the person who wants uh, to just take out retribution and be filled with anger toward others. Not to mention, when we talk about things like sin and faith and heaven and hell and judgment and God's law and morality and the need for grace, every bit of it is offensive to the world. Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? Martin Lloyd-Jones says that if you say, no, I've never been ashamed of the gospel, he said it's probably not because you're such an exceptional Christian. It's probably because you haven't fully understood how offensive the gospel is to the world. The gospel is offensive. It's a stumbling block for the sinner. So as Paul is writing the letter to the Romans, in verses 1 through 15 is really his introduction. He gives a nice summary of the gospel. I encourage you to read it this afternoon. He displays his affection for the church in Rome. And then in verse 15, he says that he's eager to preach the gospel. Now in verse 14, he says he's under obligation to preach the gospel to both Greeks and to barbarians, to the lost. But is the gospel only for the lost? No, the gospel is also for Christians. 
My friend P.J. Tobian says that we need to gospelize each other, meaning our evangelism and our discipleship is a gospel kind of endeavor. The gospel is for all of us. So in verse 15, he says that, uh, um, that the gospel is also to you. He's coming to preach it to those Christians that are reading it. While the gospel is for non-Christians, and while that's kind of the emphasis of my sermon this morning, let's also recognize that there's aspects in which we could be ashamed of the gospel even in our discipleship of one another and fail to point people to the hope that we have in Christ. Every stage of, the, of, of our life and of the Christian life is to be shaped by the gospel. So Paul then is eager, verse 15, to preach the gospel why? Then he tells us in verses 16 and 17. For, meaning here's the reason I'm eager to preach the gospel. For, I'm unashamed of the gospel. For, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, if we are ashamed of the gospel message, we will hide the greatest display of life and love that there is. But we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. Let me, let me show you from these two verses five reasons that we need not be ashamed of the gospel. Are you ready? Reason number one, the gospel reports what is good what is good. The gospel reports what is good. There's another four in verse 16. He says, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for, here's the reason I'm not ashamed, here's the reason I have shameless proclamation, because the gospel is good news. The word gospel itself, angelion, means good message, good tidings, good news. Paul, as he's talking about the gospel, certainly has in mind the Old Testament understanding of the gospel. Isaiah chapter 52, uh, verse 7. Isaiah, speaking of the gospel, he says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who proclaim good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. For Isaiah, who's looking forward to the coming Messiah, he's saying that the gospel is so good that the feet of those who take this message are lovely. Like gazelles bounding over the mountain of Zion. But gospel was also a, a, a Greek word. It was, it was a Roman word. So when, when Rome would conquer territory, they would come in with their gospel, their good news. Hey, you're now part of Rome. Congratulations, the kingdom of Rome has arrived. A decade before Jesus, the emperor Augustus was celebrated by Rome as being the Savior and the Son of God, who, there's an inscription which reads, whose birth marks the beginning of the gospel. Isn't that interesting? In some ways, Paul is also appropriating a Roman idea and saying, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Son of God. Congratulations. Christ has come. The kingdom of God has come. And the doors are open. And you're welcome to come into this kingdom. For Paul, the gospel is good news. Quick application point on this. 
Paul never apologizes for any aspect of the gospel. It's all good news. You know, sometimes we talk about Christianity or we talk about the gospel in almost an apologetic way. You know, I don't like this part of God's truth. I don't like that part of the gospel. But Paul never apologizes for God's truth. If it's God's truth, it is good. Yes, the gospel is offensive to some. But don't believe that because it's offensive means that it's not good. It's even good to those who are offended by it. Secondly, the gospel restores sinners to God. Look at verse 16, continued. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what? For salvation. Now, it's the power of God for salvation. When we see this word power, this is going to take us back to Exodus. When we think of the story of Exodus, 420 years, the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt. By the end of that time, they're being forced to make bricks without straw. Uh, their, their, their babies are being strategically killed. My mom, when I was growing up, she used to always say uh, they were between a rock and a hard place. The Hebrews were between a rock and a hard place. A gap of death. There was no solution to their problem. The Hebrews, think about it, on one hand they could have rebelled and been slaughtered by the Egyptians. On the other hand, they could have tried to run and been drowned by the Red Sea. But the Hebrews cried out to God, reached the throne room of God. And by the end of Exodus 2, what we see are these four words that I think are just fascinating. God saw and God knew. God saw and God knew. And as you know the story of Exodus, we see God's power as he does the impossible and brings the Hebrews out of slavery. By the time we get to Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, God says, for this reason I have raised you up. Why? To show my power. Power. That's that word power. The same kind of power that brought Israel out of Egypt is the power of God unto salvation that is offered in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. It doesn't merely contain power or point to power, but the gospel message proclaimed comes as God's power. For what? Unto salvation. Now, if you're new to Christianity or uh, getting to know the faith and, and the Bible, I want you to understand that this word salvation has two different meanings to it, two or two different angles, two different concepts, uh, two sides of the same coin. One would be that of deliverance. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we are saved by him from the wrath of God, meaning we are delivered from judgment. What we see in the story of the Bible is that the tyranny of Egypt was not Israel's biggest problem. But it was really the tyranny of sin and death. It was really the, the curse coming on all of us because of sin and death, and that is God's wrath. 
in salvation, we are delivered from God's judgment. We are delivered from death, from the curse. Deliverance. Salvation also means healing. Healing for sin-sick rebels. Forgiveness for those who have rebelled against God. Fellowship for those who are separated from God. Salvation. We, we will be saved and we are saved through the power of the gospel. How is anybody saved? I wonder if you ever ask yourself that simple question. How can God save anybody? How does somebody go from a, a, a rebel against God, not believing these things, to the point where they say, wow, I'm receiving this salvation? It's power. Where is the power for salvation? Paul says it's in the proclamation of the gospel. And I want this to encourage all of us. Meaning in all of our fumbling, as we try to, with the best of our ability, explain the gospel message to the hardest heart, and we just think, man, this isn't going anywhere, through the proclamation of the gospel, that very proclamation has the power of God to save souls, the same kind of power that brought Israel out of Egypt, as we call people to repent and believe in Jesus. So therefore, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to salvation. The gospel reports what is good. The gospel restores sinners to God. And thirdly, the gospel reaches for the whole world. To whom is this gospel message offered? Well, again, look at verse 16. He says, it's offered to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. Now, notice he doesn't say the gospel is the power of God to all who obey, or the gospel is the power of God to all who follow the law or who are good. But he says the gospel is the power of God to all who believe. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says that we are saved not because of the righteous things we have done. How are we saved? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 says, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Meaning God counted Abraham's reliance on him as righteousness itself. I read a simple illustration of this. Someone said, imagine that you had a check for a million dollars. I wrote you a check for a million dollars out of my bank account because I've just got that kind of money to give away. Amen? What do you have to do to receive the check? Answer, excuse me. (coughs) Answer, you have to sign it. You have to endorse the check. You have to say, this is for me. Now imagine you go ahead and take my check and you endorse it and you cash it and then you walk around uh, bragging about how you earned a million dollars. And I'm going to look at you and say, hey, that was a gift. That was something you just received. This This is what it means to believe the gospel. As we call people to repent and believe, we're saying, 
uh, endorse this. Uh, say, yes, this is not just a good message for somebody out there, but this is a message for me. Jesus didn't just die for somebody. Jesus died for me. And for many, that is the moment of conversion. Put your full trust in the God who restores sinners. Stop trying to earn your salvation. Stop trying to build your own righteousness. Rely totally on Jesus who for our sake became sin. He who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 16, he he goes on to tell us the gospel is for the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think what he's saying here simply is this. It's for everybody. For Jews and for Greeks. For all who would believe. Not for those who are likely to believe. None of us are likely to believe. But since the gospel comes with the power of God unto salvation, that means even those who you believe are unlikely to believe are not outside of God's ability to save. Is the gospel for your kids? Yes. Is the gospel for your, your, your parents who have rejected Christ and you're just not sure if, they, they even ha- well, well, if, if, if they'll ever be open to it? Your, your grandparents who are nearing death that don't know Jesus, is the gospel for them? Yes. Is the gospel for your brother who you haven't talked to for years? Yes. Is the gospel for your neighbor who annoys you? Yes. The gospel is for all who believe. Who do you write off? Who, who, who do you think, man, they're just too far off? They're beyond the power of God. No, they're not. A simple takeaway from this message would just be this. Don't be ashamed of the gospel simply because you don't think they're going to get it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Amen? Fourth point, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. So he goes on, and why he's not ashamed of the gospel, in verse 17 he says, for in it, here's another for reasoning, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Commentators say righteousness of God here may have three different meanings. First, they say it may may mean uh, distributive righteousness. This is the negative aspect of God's justice, uh, that that God has judgment for the wicked. Now, often human courts uh, err. This is part of the problem as we think about God as the judge, as we, we, we imagine our human courts and our human judges I just recently read a story of a man, uh, 84-year-old Isaiah Andrews, who two years ago was exonerated in Cleveland after serving 46 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. You know, we hear these kinds of stories, and, and we think, man, I don't know if I can, I can trust the judgments of the court, or can I even trust the judgments of God? What's interesting is this, is while human courts can make mistakes, God's righteousness is seen in his judgments. 
His righteousness is seen in his judgments. Distributive righteousness. Commentators say this could also mean God's definitive righteousness. This is God's action of establishing what is right. Meaning nobody saves themselves no more than the Hebrews could save themselves from Egypt. But when God moves in his righteousness, God rights wrongs. He heals the broken. He forgives the sinner. He lifts the shamed. He places us into Christ and he makes us his people. That is God's definitive righteousness. Commentators say, thirdly, righteousness of God could mean the declarative righteousness of God, meaning the act of justification, declaring us to be right. For example, if I were to say to my kid, kids, if I were to say, hey, if you clean your room, I'll take you to the park, and the room is not clean, and I clean the room for my child, and then I say, hey, we're going to go to the park. Why? I'm going to count my cleaning of your room as if you did it. That's, that's, that, that is a declarative righteousness, that God accounts his righteousness as ours. So, so which one is it? Well, I believe it's all three, meaning the gospel displays the whole of God's righteousness. In the gospel, we see that God distributes our judgment, God rescues us, God restores us, and then God declares us righteous. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty faith. Amen. So what is our response? Well, our, res- our response is in verse 17. It's faith. Look at verse 17. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You get, you get his main point there. From faith for faith. As it is written, the righteousness shall live by faith. Faith, faith. Faith is the beginning and faith is the end of our response. We have faith in God. Martin Luther, the old monk, who so believed that he could somehow work his way into God's affections, entered into a monastery and, and made all of his best attempts to earn righteousness, but in his best attempts, uh, attempts, he constantly messed up. And in despair, Luther wrote this. This is pre-conversion Luther, by the way. Speaking of himself, he says, but what works? What works can come from a heart like mine? How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted in their very source? And then it was this this last line of verse 17 that God used to bring Martin Luther to salvation. The righteous shall live by Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Keep believing. Keep believing. Even now, continue in your faith. 
until you see Christ face to face. Encourage each other, help each other, strengthen each other's faith until that day we see him face to face. And last, fifthly, as a result, the gospel rewrites our future. The gospel rewrites our future. Meaning, we, we, we often think uh, our, our destiny, our future, is something we create. That's, that's the way we, we, we are born to think. Kind of like a chess game, where you're constantly moving the pieces around, hoping to capture the queen. My wife and I used to play chess quite a bit, and then we discovered it was not good for our marriage. You know, it's a stressful game, and we're both extremely competitive. And so often, that feels like life, doesn't it? Just always moving our pawns, always moving in the right position, hoping to capture the queen, hoping to make the right move, so that we can somehow make something of this life. But there's, there's an old Italian proverb which says, once the game is over, the king and the pawn go back into the same box. Meaning no matter how good your chessboard looks in this earth, when this game is over, without Christ, our future is all the same. We're put into a box and buried about eight feet deep. And without Christ, have only eternal death. From dust, to dust. It is appointed unto man once to die and then judgment. But saints, the gospel rewrites our future, changes our destiny, and the gospel leads us to life. The English Standard Version of this, this, uh, this chapter, this chapter 1, verse 17 reads, the righteous shall live by faith. And I just want to kind of comment on this really quickly here. It's an accurate translation, but I think it can be slightly misunderstood. Meaning, I think we can slightly misunderstand this to be that the righteous have a certain quality of faith. That the righteous live by really good faith, or the righteous live with a lot of faith, or the righteous live with unwavering faith, as if the point is on our faith. But Paul never emphasizes our faith as the point. We're never saved by the quality of our faith. We're saved by the quality of the Savior we have faith in. And the result of our salvation is not more faith. Yes, more faith comes, but the result is, the result is life. It's that we live it's that we're raised again from the dead. The, the word for word translation of this from the Greek to the English is simply this the righteous by faith shall live. Meaning the, the box couldn't contain Jesus. Three days later, the stone was rolled away, and Jesus lives. And he looks across this great cavern of death and he calls to all of us, turn from your sins and trust in me and the righteous by faith shall live. He rewrote our destiny. 
Isn't the gospel good? My, my goal this morning as we've just been meandering through these two verses is just to say this. The gospel is good. You see, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel reports what is good, restores the sinner, reaches for the whole world, reveals the righteousness of God, and the gospel rewrites our future. Why should we be ashamed of the gospel when it is that good? Saints, our our gospel confidence comes from our gospel comforts. As I close, let me tell you about peanut butter pie. When I was in college, I walked into the cafeteria one day, and they had this peanut butter pie out, and it had this, this chocolate crust to the, I mean, no, no crust crust. It was just solid milk chocolate as a crust and some kind of peanut butter deliciousness on top of it, all right? And I ate the, I, I got a piece of that, and I sat there, and I ate it, and I was like, Looking around the room, I was like, has anybody tried this? This is phenomenal. And so I started telling people, like, hey, try this pie. This is really good. You know, and I, I, I ate the pie, and then the next day I went in, the pie wasn't out, and I went to the cafeteria lady, and I said, hey, where's the pie? Can you bring, so she, every, for maybe months, uh, my wife could testify to this. I think she got tired of me talking about the pie. Um, for months I would go in and say, hey, can I go back to the freezer and get the pie out? And of course, everybody is eating the pie, and I'm telling everybody about it. Why? Because I tasted and saw that the pie was good. This is, our, this is why we're unashamed of the gospel. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Oh, taste and see that he is good. His word is like honey on my lips. I said, there's nothing to be ashamed of. So therefore, saints, believe it and proclaim it to each other and to the hardest of hearts. Because there is only one hope in this world, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a Savior he is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the good news that has the power to save. I pray that we would be people who proclaim the gospel to each other and to the lost. That you would strengthen us even this morning, revive us, embolden us. God, I pray for the lost that are in relationships with the folks in this church or around this church. Give them a powerful evangelistic ministry. And as they make disciples, God, I pray that they would never turn away from the gospel in their discipleship, but that the gospel would frame the whole of their Christian life together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.